Hello, wonderful listeners, and welcome to the Atypical Behavior Analyst, your place in space to hear conversational information about the science of behavior analysis. I am your host, Kelly, and welcome to episode 35. But before we begin, let's go over some quick housekeeping. First off, we are ACE approved. So if you're listening for continuing education units, jot down the two keywords you'll hear interspersed during the talk, and then take those over to our website, atypicalba.com, where you can purchase CEUs. And take a few seconds to cruise around the site to find additional resources for each episode and more information about our amazing guests. Next, if you'd like to stay up to date with upcoming talks and live events, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Our live events are a fantastic time to hang out, learn, and interact directly with our guests. And our social media is a great way to get to know the podcast. So feel free to say hi. You can subscribe, rank, and review us on your favorite listening platforms as well. One final tidbit. Stay tuned after the talk for a preview clip from episode 36. If you've listened to our previous episodes, you're familiar with how behavior analysis isn't limited to working with humans or their systems and organizations. But if not, this is going to be an enlightening talk for sure. There's a whole field of study revolving around animal behavior. And similar to their human counterparts, animals are unique creatures, and the science of behavior analysis can help bridge the gap to understanding and working with animals. In this live talk, we meet with BAB, Behavior Analysts Analyzing Animal Behavior, comprised of Dr. Erica Feuerbacher, Dr. Eduardo J. Fernandez, and Laura Perkins, to discuss how methodology of behavior analysis that many are familiar with when working with humans can also be applied when working with animals. So grab your favorite writing utensils and get ready to dig into episode 35, Creature Feature, Unpacking Behavior Analysis and Animal Training. Um, so yeah, welcome everyone. Happy Friday. This is a fantastic live chat with a typical behavior analyst and Bab, which makes me really happy to say every single time. So our behavior analyst analyzing animal behavior. Um, so it's a fun, delightful thing. And I'm really excited because we've got returning uh, Eddie and Laura, and then we have a new member with Erica. Um, and so I am excited to kind of jump in and see what you guys have in store for us. Um, if you took a look at the learning objectives, we're going to be hitting lots of fun things. So if you're an animal person, awesome. If you're a BCBA, awesome. Hopefully you'll see like the mission of our you know podcast is to see how behavior analysis works across you know your organisms and settings. The science works. It's great. So um, with that, a uh, couple more quick housekeeping things. It's our birthday month. Woohoo. We turned one um, on March 25th, which is kind of exciting. So thank you guys for letting me do this for a year and hopefully I can keep doing this because it's kind of fun. Um, and I like being able to support other behavior analysts in the science and, you know, disseminate. So, you know, hopefully if, you know, things continue to go well, we'll keep growing and, you know, feel free to send us feedback, um, share with other people, reach out. You know, we talk about verbal communities a lot and making sure that you've got people that are mentoring you and everything. Um, but yeah, with that, I will stop uh, blathering on and I would love to introduce our guests and have them give kind of, especially for Laura and Eddie, kind of a recap of where you are, what you're doing right now. Um, and then Erica, if you could tell us your kind of behavior story and how you got into animal training and then we'll jump in. So I will let you guys go. All right, I guess I'll start. Um, I'm Laura Perkins. Um, let's see, I graduated from University of North Texas in 2012, and I do um, consulting for dog training, dog behavior, kind of all, all different types of problems. Um, and 
And yeah, so I do, I go in home or I have them come to my brand new training building. Um, <laughs> so that's been really nice to not drive as much. Um, yeah, so I primarily work with dogs and uh, my job is to teach people how to do the training or the behavior modification, whatever, whatever it is we're working on towards their goals. So very cool. Congrats on the new building. Yes, thank you. It's still a little bit of a work in progress, but it's functional. <laughs> yeah. I'll either way, should I go? I guess I'll go. I'll yeah. I was gonna say, Erica, by the way, you may have the most calm zoom cat that i've ever seen uh I, I rarely do we see cats calm during zoom that's often the very big discriminative stimulus for them to be hey now i can get a bunch of attention um so <laughs> that, why, that yeah that's why the dogs have chews right now because it is an sd for them to yeah do naughty things but that's why I was going to ask what 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 your uh, training protocol, what your management protocol has been for your cat, because that's why I see it so much more with cats is because people often don't think about how they're managing uh, uh, their their pet cats under those conditions. So the cats just, you know, it's, hey, this is attention time. Right. So anyway, very, very, very nice to see a very calm, a very nice, nice cat calm and uh not that there are no uh there are no bad cats out there but you know very nice to see um so now that i've i've led to that tangent oh i think we needed somebody to mute um so i'm eddie eduardo whatever you want to i i don't have any preference for for what you call me um i'm here in seattle i'm actually in my office at seattle pacific university where i've been for the past year but for the past couple years, uh, I have been a senior lecturer in the uh, School of Animal and Veterinary Sciences, so in the vet school at University of Adelaide, and we just haven't been able to get me over there on the ground in Australia because of all these global pandemic things. Um, so, yeah, we've we've we actually just found out a couple weeks ago that my visa is being processed, and it looks like I'm going to be there in June slash July for the second semester. So that's pretty exciting. Um, and uh, but right now I'm still in Seattle. I've been here for uh, the past year. Uh, I, I boy, when did I graduate from UNT a couple decades ago? It's that forever ago. Um, so uh, and I did my doctorate in Indiana. Um, I started the ORCA program out there at North Texas um, with uh, Jesus as the faculty mentor. Um, and uh, a lot of my stuff has really been zoo welfare research, although I do uh, a bit of companion animal work as well. So uh, yeah, there you go. All right, well, uh, I'll, I'll introduce our, our fabulous guest first. This is Calamity Jane. Um, she is our Montana cat. We adopted her when we were in, um, uh, when I had a position in Montana. So uh, she seems to like Virginia as well, too. Uh, my name is Erica. I uh, luckily um, got to hang out with Laura and um, Kelly when I was at UNT as well. I didn't overlap with Eddie, but I did my master's there with Jesus as well. And then went on to get my PhD at University of Florida with Clive Wynn and the Dog Cognition Lab. Um, since I haven't been on before, I'll just give you the, the quick rundown of how I got into animals and animal training. Um, I've just been an animal 
little aficionado all my life. And my parents were uh, incredibly generous and indulging and let me have everything I wanted. Um, <laughs> so I had goats and chickens and horses and guinea pigs and pigeons and rabbits and uh, exotic birds and dogs and cats and hamsters and gerbils and everything under the sun, pretty much. And a hedgehog, which was illegal at the time in Arizona. Um, so <laughs> we, we had everything. Uh, when I went, I, I graduated uh, with my bachelor's in biology from Arizona State. Um, I knew I didn't want to be a veterinarian, but I didn't know what else there was to do at the time. So I went into biology, doing a lot of ecology, evolution, and physiology. Actually went to Berkeley for a few years in insect physiology in grad school, but all I wanted to do was train my German shepherd. I got myself a working line shepherd puppy as a graduation gift. And I didn't go home and read about fluid biomechanics or uh, fluid dynamics. I went home and read about dog training. So I figured I was in the wrong field. <laughs> I luckily got a job at a Peninsula Humane Society in San Mateo, California in the behavior department. Uh, along the way, uh, became a certified professional dog trainer, started offering classes and, and private consults, and then met Jesus at a clicker expo and realized that there was a, a graduate program in what I was passionate about. So I headed back there, and uh, that's that's led me to where I am now. Uh, after graduating Florida, uh, I was an assistant professor at Carroll College in Montana, where Calamity and I met. Um, I ran the dog training program for their undergraduates, uh, where they fostered dogs for a year, um, and we did basic obedience training uh, in the first semester, specialized service or scent training in the second semester. Uh, I've been out here at Virginia Tech for four years now. Um, I'm in the animal and poultry science department. I still focus on dog learning, uh, do a lot of dog welfare and shelters, um, branched out into uh, horse training and horse behavior while I'm here as well. Uh, we're doing a little bit of cattle habituation as well. So <laughs> we're doing a lot of fun little projects and I oversee our online master's program in applied animal behavior and welfare. So. Holy shnikes. I love just the repertoires that the three of you bring. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so cool. Um, so, okay, with, like I said, with broad repertoires, let's kind of jump in. So animal training, um, Laura, you threw out the term, you know, behavior modification. And, you know, that's one of those that for some people can kind of, it raises the hairs on the back of your neck um, in the, you know, human side of working with behavior analysis that can tend to be like, oh, these negative connotations, but really it is just a word that we use. You know, we are modifying things in the environment that changes your behavior, your behavior is modified. Okay. Um, but there's also a lot of other overlaps. And I know one of the things we wanted to talk about was when you're training, um, you know, it's not just looking at, I want them to do this skill, but there's also things like you talked about, Erica, these behavior reductions where we might see we need to, you know, get rid of something, but as a good behavior analyst knows, you need to replace it with something else because otherwise I'm just, I'm, I'm going to find something else to do. Um, but for humans, I think a lot of us are very used to talking about things in terms of like, it's escape from a demand or escape from something aversive, or I'm seeking to go towards something, you know, typically it's seeking to go towards or seeking to get away from. And in the animal world, those things are similar, but the big difference is um, the communication. One of the big differences is, you know, they can't tell you I'm leaving this because. And so there's a lot more detective work that really needs to go into figuring out what's the actual function of this. Um, because there's, you know, it's a whole different biology, a whole different physiology and everything too. So 
I know there's a lot there to unpack. So I will open it up and let's just kind of, how do you guys figure out the function when someone comes to you and says, I have a thing that needs fixing? Where do we go from here? Well, I, I can jump in and say that I think in the animal training world, this isn't done enough. Um, most people will look at the topography um, and assume the behavior or the behavioral function. Uh, one of the places where I see this really problematic is um, leash reactivity in dogs that I think there's some that are, you know, positively reinforced and some that are negatively reinforced. So, you know, I think this is where we turn to our functional analysis. Um, but again, most trainers uh, aren't skilled in that, um, on how to execute that or interpret that. So I think most of the time they're looking at kind of doing an ABC analysis, right? What happened before, what happens after, and trying to deduce from that. But we know that's, you know, not always perfect, but... I'll see what Laura and Eddie have to say. I think, you know, I will flat out say I don't always do functional analysis. It depends on what the um, situation is. And that's one of the challenges I found in this, this uh, sector of <laughs> behavior is you might, I might get a client for three sessions they usually have really specific, like, and that's lucky, right? Like my clients just, they want it fixed in one session. So um, the first thing I do is feel out like how much of that is my human client going to be comfortable with? Because sometimes all they need are some basic skills to build the communication with their dog. Sometimes they don't need that full functional analysis. But um, if we're going to do something like that, I usually start with an interview and then I, you know, we do look at ABCs and then from there we, we test just like you would with people. So, yeah, I, I guess the one component that I'd add to this, because certainly I've been, I've been reemphasizing this point. I mean, the start of my career and the start of ORCA itself back at North Texas, really, we, we emphasize this point was the data collection. Um, because sometimes I think it, 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 it's easy to forget, um, and this is a distinction some people have made between behavior analysis and, and behavior modification or BMOD, right? Is that BMOD is the application of principles in the absence of analyzing data. Depends on which operational definition you're using, but that's certainly the way that BMOD has been used to some extent. And there's some important, uh, as Laura was pointing out, important ways that, that BMOD itself is implemented in the absence of data, just applying the principles um, when it's easy to understand the function of some behavior or, or we need to intervene now. Um, but behavior analysis and applied behavior analysis itself has always, um, an integral part of that has always been the experimental data, as Erica was uh, alluding to with functional analyses and, and, and whatnot. So it's, it's especially over the past few years, I think in part because I've been a little concerned about seeing in the training community when people are saying, I'm doing behavior analysis and they're doing it without any data. And, I'm, and, and what I've pointed out is that's not behavior analysis. You're applying behavioral principles. So I think what we what's important to recognize is understanding function means and also does doesn't have to be um, a, a functional analysis in a traditional Wadian sense. Um, this is something that that people like Greg Hanley have brought up. But the important, the absolutely critical feature, at least in terms of analyzing function is experimental data, typically within subject data. 
um, that's used to understand that. And it's a part that's really been missing within the training community, um, in part because we've been so good. The training community, I should I say we loosely, but I should say most most reward based trainers have been so great at applying principles and implicitly understanding some of these functions, at least good enough to successfully apply principles in the absence of needing data. Um, I've just emphasized that don't that we need to be mindful of the fact that behavior analysis is done with data and it needs that and not just the, the lip service that sometimes is, is uh, 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 paid to that where people are saying, oh, no, no, no I'm taking data. Um, but is this quantitative? Is it experimental? What are we doing there? So anyway, I'm opening up some can of worms there and I'll I'll shut up for a second and leave it at that. So I think it's interesting because, I mean, Laura, you said, you know, we typically do a functional analysis and in my head I'm going, but, you know, the FAs that I've run in like clinics or in a residential facility, um, I mean, we're in, you know, a smaller room and everything, but I'm typically presenting like a task. So like here, fold this towel or put a coin in something that's very, you know, they, they're able to, they've mastered before. Um, and usually I'm able, you know, I have a, a longer history of like what those skills are that they can and can't do so I can put those conditions in place. But when you've got somebody coming in, like, you know, they've called you and said, hey, I want to come do an interview, can work with my dog and everything. You find out, OK, we need to unpack a little bit more. Um, you know, one, I guess let's look at, you know, how do you set that up? And then two, when you go then to talk about the data afterwards, you know, describing those things, because it's different language, so not different language, but it's a different way of speaking, I think, with animals versus when I'm talking to like a parent. So if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, there's a lot there. So like um, the first interaction I have with a client is always to understand what are your problems, what are your goals and what skills do you already have? So um, once I learn what their problems are, you know, like you were saying, like you'd present a task um, and maybe we don't present tasks to animals, like I'm not going to ask them to you know, do matching or something like that. But um, there are predictable antecedents where these problem behaviors come out and you have to find that out first and then you recreate them to do your um, functional assessment or functional analysis. So the antecedents are more like environmental setups or like maybe they're really specific like uh woman comes home from work and walks in the door right and that's what leads to the dog jumping um so like we can sort of present that situation just like you would present a task so um and then I forget what else you said <laughs> so. And, and that seems to be where Eddie's suggestion of taking data comes in, right? That, that you have that presentation and you start an intervention and you start looking to see, is that intervention moving the behavior in the right way or not? And if not, then, you know, you know, you're kind of, kind of on the, on the wrong track there. Yeah. And, and I'll add one other component to this, because I think it's really relevant. And sometimes I think this is part of what can be daunting for some trainers is, this term functional analysis has come within the applied behavior analytic community. Um, and that's a whole other, we haven't even gotten into what's the distinction between ABA with people and ABA with animals. Cause I would actually argue there's a big difference. 
Um, and, and especially as Kelly already alluded to, some of the ethical concerns of some of the stuff that's gone on, and there's certain differences in ethical approaches in general, um, I think that we could talk about, but I'll, I'll leave that for now. Um, so uh, in terms of FA, when, when, we, when you hear that term mentioned or functional analysis, it's almost used, it's, it, especially in the greater applied behavior analysis community, it's used almost synonymously with an Awadian functional analysis. And the thing is that term exists. I mean, Skinner used the term functional analysis, talked about doing a functional analysis all the time. Uh, and he was not talking about using some type of alternating treatments or uh, design or uh, he was simply talking about the way that he defined analyzing behavior, which was what's our independent variable? It's the contingency that we're manipulating. What's our dependent variable? Well, for Skinner, it was almost exclusively rate. But since Skinner, we've we've moved on to just measurement. That's the key point. So manipulation of some type of environmental contingency, typically a reinforcement or other learning contingency, and then some measure of a change in behavior. And doing that experimentally with within subject manipulation, that's what Skinner, that's all Skinner meant by functional analysis. And so when we take, and that's, I think, what the, the uh, Hanley approach is, is kind of throwing things back to a little bit more, is just saying we're experimentally trying to understand the function of behavior through through data. And it doesn't have to be the, we don't have to have an escape condition. We don't have to have, uh, we don't have to have all of the set ways that the traditional Awadian approach takes. Now, some of that may have sounded a bit foreign, what I just said, right? For people that are, are maybe not so embedded in, in the ABA literature or familiar with Awadian functional analyses or whatnot. So the simple point uh, that I was making, the take home message there is that if we can use data uh, if we can collect data at some level, and especially when we can be quantitative about the data that we use, and we can start to change some of the conditions uh, systematically in how we do that, we're getting at the function of behavior. And that's what allows us to analyze behavior in the way that behavior analysis is defined. So that's a really critical component. It's not necessary, certainly not to apply principles uh, from behavior analysis, but it's incredibly helpful for understanding behaviors and understanding learning functions. And really it's, you know, what, if you don't do that, if you don't take the data and you do just look at maybe the topographies and you kind of um, go with the flow, if you will, I mean, you're still going to see progress. You're still going to see things move forward. But taking that extra little bit and delving a little bit deeper, you can maybe see better progress or newer skills are going to attain. You're going to get longer maintenance with less, uh, you know, breakdown later on. So, yeah, I, I just have one more thing on that. Uh, one of the places that I see the disregard for function most problematically are in the trainers that use aversives, that I think they tend to come in with an aversive and said, we're just going to knock that behavior down you know, can we, can we punish it? Can we suppress it without ever asking what's the maintaining reinforcer, which we know is going to impact the efficacy of their punishment contingency and is also unethical, um, right? That we need to assess and try and get at the function of that behavior. And as long as it's a safe, safe function for that animal, um, then provide it uh, contingent on some alternative, more desirable behavior. And I, I think that's, you know, when we think about 
folks using positive reinforcement contingencies, maybe it's not quite as problematic. You know, you might not get the as effective a behavior change, but hopefully you're not, you know, causing a decrease in welfare. But I think the the folks that still, you know, the balanced trainers or um, more aversive or even more aversive than what they consider balanced um, really don't ever take into account the function of that behavior and they just try and shut it down. I mean, think about the contingencies. It's really reinforcing for me to get immediate results. Mm -hmm. And I know when I've been called into um, a home and because I work with adults and humans, um, it's, we need you to get rid of this. They yell, they are aggressive. And I'm like, well, here's the problem. I could come in and I could use an aversive and I'm pretty sure I could knock this out in a couple of days, but not only like this person's going to hate me afterwards and they're going to hate everything about it. And none of that is okay. And so it's the same thing with animals. Like you see how they react to things. Do you want an animal that's fearful? And really when you read the animal, like what I remember of animal literature is fearful animals are very reactive. So you're just you know, creating a worse problem by doing this in the long run, instead of taking that time to unpack. Um, and then the more that you practice doing that, the less, I don't say the less time it will take you, but you start to see those patterns emerge more often. And it's not, I don't have to do the, maybe the full thing every single time, but like, okay, I've seen this pattern before. Maybe we try this intervention, see if it works. Okay. Doesn't pull it back out, try something different. Um, so with that kind of going with one of the questions in the chat, we can kind of take it, um, it was asking about, I'm going to come back up to the top because for whatever reason. So when you find yourself shifting focus from the animal to the human maintaining the cases, so like fostering and they're fostering the challenging behavior or inhibiting the change, how do you tell the family that this might not be the animal for you? Um, and I think that happens a lot, even with humans, you know, this, you know, we might not mesh in what we do with our training. So, but it's a difficult discussion. How do you guys handle that? I, um, I, that's one of the last discussions I have with a client. I work very hard to keep an animal in the home they're in as long as it seems like the home has the resources to meet the animal's needs. So sometimes that's a mismatch. And then we have that discussion earlier, but, um, I think upfront, one of the things that I work really hard to help families understand is that they are going to have to be doing the training. Um, I can show them how and get them started, but it's, it takes effort. I just had a new client yesterday who, um, you know, what she wants her dog to do when someone walks in the door is a little bit unrealistic. <laughs> she wants them to like lay on a mat and not move. Right. Um, and like, wait there. Right. And so, um, I said, you know, that's, it's not unachievable. It's a lot more effort. Right. And so having that discussion up front, I think helps people get their heads in the game to put in that effort and do the training so that they, they learn, they have to change their behavior, right? Like you have to change your behavior to get the animal to change their behavior. Um, now there are times where like, yeah, it's not a fit. And then we have that discussion. And usually if, if that's the case, they know it. Um, they, they, they are the ones that say that. <laughs> so um, they bring it up and they're, they get it. And so then they're just, it's about helping them find 
a way to solve that. So whether they find a different home or shelter or whatever it is. So, yeah. I don't know if that answered the question, but that's how I approach it. And I don't know. I'm sure Erica and Eddie have experienced I, it too. I, I was going to say it's, it's often less of a problem for me because, uh, you know, I, I'm interacting with a lot of zoos and, the question of does our penguin fit with our enclosure or is, is far less relevant, but, but it's an interesting, uh, uh, yeah, it's an interesting point along these lines because it, it gets at something that's really important, which is that I like to point out that all, all behavior has a function, right? Or at least we can say almost all behavior. So let's, let's be safe and say almost all behavior has a function. And so this is something that that's problematic. In fact, right now we're doing uh, I, I'm working uh, with Seattle Aquarium on a couple introduction projects with a new harbor seal and uh, a new northern fur seal that are being introduced into the exhibit. We're looking at what the effects of this are. So it, it happens. These we have animals that show up. They, they come to a new environment, a new exhibit, and we have those environment behavior relationships that we can look at, the, the contingencies that are involved. So it's just as relevant that we can say, here's a behavior, this is a behavior we don't want to see occurring, or this is a behavior that's problematic, this is a behavior, and for me, problematic always, always, ultimately is about the welfare of the animal. And the welfare of the animal is impacted by the way they interact with people, right? If the person doesn't like their yeah, anim yeah. the animal that's with them, that's going to impact the animal's welfare. So, but I'm really, I'm, I'm there for the, the welfare of the animal. That's one of my key components. And it, it's a lot easier to assess that in a, with, with a zoo. So I can say, okay, these are the behaviors that are occurring. We know this is problematic for the welfare. Let's see if we can understand why these behaviors are happening. And I do have a little bit of that luxury of then being able, and, and as applied scientist, this is the other luxury that I have, is I get to sit there and go, now let's take a bunch of data. So for instance, the projects at Seattle Aquarium, I have a, there's a graduate student that heads up that project, and then we have research assistants that go and, and, and collect, and, and she does as well, collect lots of the data. And so I get to sit there and stare at data and make assessments. It, I, for me, it feels you know like I'm cheating a little bit at that level because I get to sit there and go, okay, now we know the function and it, you know, let's keep that in mind. I, I certainly am empathetic to the practitioner's uh, dilemma in dealing with this, especially when trying to figure out if there is a way that you can get to a data-based understanding of that function and what decisions you have to make. Because at the end of the day, I don't have to worry so much about, well, you got to get rid of this penguin, right? So, but I'm empathetic to the to that plight. So, yeah, I, I think the welfare aspect is an angle for home practitioners as well. People with companion animals is, you know, a lot of times I think Laura mentioned that a lot of times the owners will be the ones that sort of bring it up when they're at that point of this dog is really not a fit, is exploring those options, and that's where I think you can bring up the welfare of the animal and also the welfare of, of the owner. Um, and so how is that impacting their, their life if, if it's really life limiting and sometimes those behavioral issues are. Um, so there can be rehoming, but then that, I won't get it, we won't go into this now, but that brings up a whole other issue, right, of behavioral euthanasia. Do you rehome that animal or do you euthanize? Uh, and that's a, another huge discussion. Once you've decided the, this animal's not a fit for that home, um, 
you know, what, what are your options? And that usually comes down to uh, trying to assess whether that behavior is predictable and it's limited to a few situations that you can change um, and the danger, the, the damage the animal does when it engages in that behavior. And, and there are huge ethical concerns for passing on animals that are dangerous to others, um, especially unpredictably. So, yeah, it's tough. But yeah. the conversation that needs to be had, I've worked with families that have brought in um, service animals or wanting to have a service animal for their, you know, tiny human. And I'm going, I don't think this is going to work because people forget how much work really goes into, especially if you want, you know, good quality. Um, you know, I'm thinking of some of these service dogs that I've seen on like TikToks or reels and, you know, they're able to open up fridge doors and grab keys and they've got these, you know, receptive repertoires that are, you know, all these different items and everything they can, you know, help their owners with seizures and it, yeah, it's amazing, but there's a lot that has to go into that to make it look that good, um, and make it that fluid and, it's something that we have to consider. Um, so with kind of that, I know, Laura, you brought up, a, a, you know, these goals um, and sometimes they're achievable, sometimes they're not. But when you guys are starting to work with the parent parents, when you're working with your fur parents, um, the ones with hooves and paws, um, and you're talking about setting goals, I know we, we talked a little bit in our previous discussion about trying to get buy-in. And so setting up those opportunities for not just the animal to be successful, but also for their, uh, their parent to be successful, because you want to make sure that, again, that they're going to maintain these things going uh, when they go home and they go out and they're actually practicing. So what are some of the, the things that you ask them to do to kind of help work with that buy-in so that way they do learn how to follow your instructions? I think knowing what's most important to them is one thing I take into account. And then trying to consider like how, like, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like how easy is it going to be to achieve that goal? So whatever we work on first, I want to balance that. I want it to be something that's important to the human um, and also is something that they can like solve pretty quickly. Um, so they like get that reinforcement. Um, and then usually you know, and so a lot of times we'll just, I'll just do some simple, like liquor training of really simple behaviors in that first session. Maybe, you know, I try to pick something that would be useful for them in, in one of the areas that they've come to me for, but like something as simple as like touch, you know, shaping a hand touch, like nose touch to hand is a really common behavior that we teach. It's a great alternative behavior for lots of different situations. And um, it's usually something people haven't tried to teach already. So that's the other thing is like, I try to avoid like working on sit or down first, because they've usually tried to teach that. And so it's messy. Um, but like, starting with really simple skills like that helps people see how effective it can be. And then they're more willing to work on the like problem solving approach that I want to take. And especially those animals that are having some behavioral issues, I think a lot of the owners think they are sort of untrainable. And so mm -hmm. you coming yes. in and showing them how quickly their animal can pick up this new response, it sort of shifts their opinion of the animal like, oh, 
it's it's actually a smart animal and, and the reason it's been engaging in all this problem behavior might be because it's so smart and it's figured out the poor contingencies the owner has. Yeah. That's a great point too. Yeah. Sorry, I think I hopefully you all can still hear me, but I think my microphone and my video is is something's going a little wonky, so I may have to log out and log back in real quick. If I haven't broken technology, then this isn't a podcast for the atypical behavior analyst because that's just what I do. So, but no, we can hear you. So, um, yeah, jump in. Oh, I didn't have anything to add right there. I, I got a little startled by my uh, my my technology breaking here at this moment. So sorry, but no, I uh, I was just listening otherwise while I was fixing. So I had. Uh, nothing directly to add to, to managing some of these contingencies. All righty. Um, so that kind of, and I wanted to jump into the the kind of marketing, not marketing side of things, but looking at that buy-in and everything, because um, another one of the questions was, you know, helping people learn to seek out that data and to seek out things that are going to change their behaviors and have them like pivot towards the things that... Um, you want them to. So like Laura, you said you start with doing something small, getting that behavioral momentum going, and then they're able to start picking up on, oh, okay, this is how I should be thinking. So in the future, when these kind of events happen that look similar, I know what's in my repertoire and like what to um, grab from my toolbox to be able to work with my animal. I don't always need to call, you know, Laura or Erica right off the bat to be like, fix this for me. So, okay. Um, so kind of going into that then, so there's other things that are, you guys do similarly that we do with humans, because um, again, it's science. And so looking at things like preference assessments um, and reinforcer assessments, um, I know there's a lot of discussion and a lot of like reels out there on animals using like AAC devices, um, little buttons and everything. I'll call them an AAC device because that's what I'm used to. Um, but they're just ways for someone to com communicate, quote unquote. Um, and those kind of all fall in line with what I've done with little humans and large humans. And so how do you guys utilize those in your practices um, and with the different animals that you've worked with as well? So because, I mean, Erica, you've had experience with so many broad animals um and then eddie you've been in the zoos and everything and so it's you know i'm not going to teach a hedgehog the same thing maybe that i would teach um i'm trying to think of something that's not a rodentia creature right now and i just can't a fish there we go a fish so thoughts on that so what do you what do you guys do when you're looking at working with your different animals and you're trying to figure out like how to best build up their skills and all that well i, I i'll just add um i i don't use talk buttons um, so, <laughs> but, um, so you, you've gotten, I know you were calling, you were referring to them as AECs and there's lots of protocols for, um, getting animals to be involved in procedures and make choices. Uh-oh. We lost that. Uh, let's see. <laughs> my anxiety got too, I got too anxious about it. I'm sorry, guys. It's my, my superpower. It's not a great one. Um, but yeah, I saw this great follow-up question or statement though in the chat about um, getting so focused on changing dog behavior, we forget to use the functional analysis to tackle the human behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I've learned in my career of working with individuals with disabilities is um, they're the ones that, you know, need the assistance and the world's not designed for them. 
and the world is designed for the rest of us. And so, you know, it's much easier for me to change my behavior and to learn how to interact with somebody in a new way or to do things a little bit differently or arrange the environment a little differently than it is for this other individual who doesn't have the same skills or repertoire that I do, you know, whether that's um, a four-legged fuzzy creature or, you know, an alien or a hobbit or a human. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really good point of, of, I think a lot of what we do is trying to teach the humans to read the animal's behavior a lot better and, and usually, you know, looking for precursor behaviors. Like, did you see him lip lick before he bit you? Um, those sorts of things of, of getting them to identify really subtle changes in their animal's behavior before the, the animal has to engage in really large, overt, and possibly scary behavior. So I think that I think that is a big part of it. And then getting the human to change their behavior so that they're not eliciting those responses in from their animal um, can go, I think, can go a long way. So when we talk about being animal trainers, a lot of what we do for working with clients is training the, training the human to interact differently with that animal. That makes me think of um, uh, Susan Friedman has like a, an interview form that's a functional assessment interview. And one of the questions in it is, when does this behavior not occur? And I've started asking that to like every client because it helps them realize, like, watch for when (laughs) things are going well. And uh, I think that's a skill that humans really, you know, dog owners usually don't come to the table with. So that made me think of that. I don't know. Yeah, I I agree. I think that goes back to your first question, Kelly. I was thinking the same thing of a lot of what we have to do is shift their focus from the problem behavior to the good behavior. And and that's where I think we start to get generalization, hopefully, is where they start to see, oh, I don't like my dog jumping on me. Here all the times he's not jumping and and they tend to, you know, attend to the naughty behavior and ignore all the wonderful things their dog is doing. And if you can build that repertoire up in the owner, you can get even further than just solving the the jumping behavior. Yeah. It's, I mean, I've been a lot of like flipping the script on things. Cause I know when I came out of grad school, I was very uh, dogmatic pun intended um, on, you know, thou shalt take the data and I want it to look this way. And it's always going to fit into this little box. Um, And then I realized that I wasn't doing justice because I was really just focused very narrowly Um, instead of, looking at it from a bigger picture perspective and seeing like, okay, so the function isn't just escape. There's all these other things that go into it and being able to see like, are there biological things or physiological things? Um, And that's where I think working with animals is so interesting too, because humans, um, thankfully we all, we all develop mostly the same way. And, you know, I don't know, growth wise, animal, you know, we all go from babies to adults um, across organisms, but physiologically things are different biologically there's certain preferences and and non-preferences and so you know there's a lot more fun detective work i think that gets to go into working with animals and you know just seeing what the capabilities are because i mean i remember showing videos of fish you know playing quote unquote soccer um on youtube to undergrads like 12 years ago. And now I scroll through Facebook and this girl has like this huge aquarium and she's a social media influencer because she has trained fish. And I'm like, that's amazing. Um, And so it's just, it's really cool things that we can kind of do with it. So, all right, we have another, I just have any other thoughts on other assessments or other things you do with your parent trainers or parents in training, not parent training. It is 
I think that animal trainers could learn a lot from the parent training literature, though. <laughs> I think that could be really like good way to bridge, right? Because it's, we're teaching, it's a situation where both the, the parent or the owner and the child or the animal, like, are learning something new. And I found that to be interesting is that like, um, it's, there's not a lot of places where the teacher is learning at the same time that the learner is learning. <laughs> and it's, it's like a cascading effect. But I think it should be like that. Um, you know, I, the best sessions I have are the ones where I get schooled. Because I'm like, oh, man, I wasn't attending to certain things. Like either I wasn't checking the environment or I wasn't checking precursor behaviors, you know, things like that. So I like being able to learn new things. And I think it's also funny because um, you could totally go to an animal parent and say, hey, go read a parent training book. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, sure. Animal to human makes sense. Um, But heaven forbid I would tell (laughs) a parent I'm going to use the same techniques that I did to train my dog um, because that tends to get frowned upon. But that's, but that's, that's fair. It is, <laughs> it is. But then I have to giggle and go, but this is the science, you know, the science is as the science is um, and why I think what we do is pretty cool. And the fact that we are getting to explore a lot more now of, um, you know, w- with technology, you know, we're seeing a lot more things on, you know, at a molecular level, if you will. And, you know, um, in neural and neuroscience and everything is, and so animals aren't just dumb animals, quote unquote, kind of thing. So I, I find that to be really intriguing. Um, there was another comment. Oh, go ahead. I was just say so, sometimes our really savvy owners that have kids will say, oh, this is just what I did with my child. I'm like, exactly. So it, it's fun when they draw those parallels for you. <laughs> for sure. And then when you pointed out that you can do this with their significant other too, then they really, you know, you really have their attention. <laughs> That's my least favorite question though. <laughs> Can you train my husband to <laughs> like, <laughs> don't, don't ask me that. <laughs> That's when I always used to joke and like people would ask, oh, you know, do you want to train our animals and everything? And I'd be like, have you seen my dog? Like Mocha was a disaster. You don't want me to do that. All right, cool friends. If you are listening for continuing education credits, here is the first of your two keywords. Your first word is biology. B-I-O-L-O-G-Y. It can be important to consider the biology of the organisms we work with. Biology. Okay, it looks like Eddie's jumped back in. Um, So there's a couple of interesting comments in the chat. So, you know, finding, going back to the animal welfare and like looking at functions and everything. So do you find sometimes that the caregiver's goals conflict with the welfare of the animal or the child and navigating those situations? So, um, yeah, I think you pinpointed it as well in your, in your question of looking at the function. So function of the animal and then function of the human and that human one, um, is, is tough. So if you guys could kind of talk a little bit about that when you're having to maybe have a darker, not a darker, but a deeper discussion. I mean, yeah, I, I think we do run into this. A, a lot of people get an, a dog or a horse for a particular reason. Um, like I adopted our last Belgian Malinois to be a competitive agility dog. And then it was clear that her environmental sensitivities uh 
we were never going to get there. And so we adjusted what our goals were as a team, which was let's go hiking instead where there are no people and no other dogs. Um, so I, 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 you know, I think that's one of the challenges is because they oftentimes get the animal with the purpose, right? They want a social dog to go to the dog park or go hang out on the porch at Starbucks or be a service dog. And they've selected the wrong animal. And even with all the right training, some of these animals are just not adept. Um, they have, you know, some genetic or epigenetic thing going on that's not going to allow them to perform their task in public the way somebody needs them to. And, and I think that's where you, again, you bring up the welfare of these are your goals. <laughs> this is what your animal is telling you it wants to do. This is what you want it to do. Are you willing to adjust your goals to meet your animals? And if not, then there's a, there's a conflict of welfare then. That's why I really did the constructional approach um, because you can really start to kind of unpack like, okay, this is what you're telling me you want but it's not matching and we can't go forward based on these certain, um, based on these barriers. And so how are we going to approach these barriers? And sometimes the answer is we have to move forward. We have to shift the goals. Um, I mean, unfortunately when you're with humans, you can't just get rid of the human as now as many parents would love to, but you can't. Um, and really I'm kind of the same way with animals of like, you've taken this creature in, but there are situations where that needs to really be strongly considered. And so, yeah, I love this talk of, of functions because um, especially with things that can't talk back to you and tell you what they want to do and why they're doing it, like the puzzle pieces. So um, welcome back. I think maybe Eddie, you made it. I don't know. Um, but there's another comment that says, ah, this has been recommended. Uh, don't shoot the dog um, when having difficulties with kiddos. And um, yeah, it's, I actually really like that book too. And um, I think I've recommended it to a parent or a two as well, because it is a nice clean breakdown of what maintains behaviors um, and what to look for and some basic tips and strategies. And so to kind of follow up on that with, um, as we're building up these repertoires or building up these behaviors, we've talked some in the past about behavioral cusps and the cusp allows you to access new environments and new reinforcers or this, that new behavior does. And so do you see those same kind of behavioral cusps when you're training animals? And if so, like, what does it look like? That's an awesome question. I love that. Um, I don't know if I like have like a sure answer, but we can probably <laughs> discuss. Maybe Erica has thoughts. I don't know, or Eddie, if he's here. Yeah, I don't think it's really been explored in animals, although I suspect they're it, one that I always think of is being able to approach a human, right, probably leads to access to a lot of other reinforcers as long as they're approaching appropriately. Um, so maybe teaching your dog to not jump on strangers uh, or not bark at strangers, things like that is sort of a potentially behavioral cusp for them. If that means then that they get to go on more walks and they get to go out to public places more often and they get more attention from other people. But again, that depends on the animal and what they find reinforcing. So how, how would you determine what the animal finds reinforcing? I know you could say watch and just does it more often, but um, I don't know, like I would look at Mocha and you're trying to figure out what I was going to use to try to train her. And it's like, sometimes a squeaky toy worked. Um, sometimes cheese worked. Sometimes it was peanut butter. Sometimes it was just nothing or being, you know, she would just walk off. And so 
when you're saying like trying to find what's reinforcing for the animal, um, how do you, how do you unpack that? Like when, and you're having, I'm sure these discussions with the owner and everything, what does that conversation entail? And maybe not specifically, but kind of the broader scope. I mean, one thing I think that's big in our field right now is the concept of choice and letting the animal, watching what the animal does. Does it actually approach that stranger? I think we oftentimes assume that our animal wants to meet everybody. And uh, when given the choice and you say, well, let me see if my dog approaches you and it doesn't, it's telling, you know, I think that's one way it's telling you um, where it wants to be in space and who it wants to be interacting with. Um, so I think giving those options, um, and following the animal's lead rather than putting it in situations and making, you know, having it, having to adapt to them, um, is a good step forward. Okay. So that leads me into, and Eddie got cut off as he was trying to talk. I'm really curious, um, about these little buttons because for me, I, I see the buttons as a choice. Um, and while it may not have the quote unquote communication standpoint um, that I would like to, you know, give to my uh, human learners, I think there's something there of, you know, I have a choice between these two buttons and I'm choosing to get this one because it does give me the thing. So I think there is a learning process there, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, is there, is there more that we could do with it? Is, am I reading too much into it? I mean, I, I think there is, there, there have been studies even in horses where they taught them to touch different symbols to get their blanket put on or taken off um, to interact with a human or get petting or get food or things like that. So, you know, I think we can certainly teach them to man in that way. I'm really skeptical that that's what's been done with these buttons because there's a glob of them <laughs> and there's, and the discrimination for them is a word on it. And I am really highly suspect that the animal has discriminated that. Um, you know, I think if we look at what people have done with primates of, you know, clear visual symbols, taking into account the specific animal's visual system and what they can perceive is important. Um, I don't think those buttons have the experimental analysis behind them for us to know. Uh, I, my joke is that I don't know if there's a button out there that says go to the vet or get a vaccination, um, because I think you need to have undesirable things out there, right? And if the animal is discriminating, they would not select that. Um, uh, so I, I agree. I mean, I think, could we use technology to build up things where the animal can tell you what's currently reinforcing, what's currently preferred? I think that would be great. I'm, I'm really suspect that your animal can discriminate like 50 buttons in a glob on a floor with words on them. But I think the concept is there. <laughs> I think something else to add, though, is um, and this isn't really like a behavior analysis issue as much as like a living with your dog issue, but um, our dogs already do a lot of things that help us see what they might want to do next. And I think in a way, like having the buttons sort of takes the responsibility off the person to learn about their dog. and. So I think there could be times where it could be really useful, but I also like, I don't know. I think it's kind of a, that's to me, that's part of the, my joy of living with my pets is like observing them and like, Oh, my dog is sitting by the back door. Maybe he needs to go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I don't know. That's something that's kind of rubbed me when I see those. <laughs> I really like that, Laura. That's a really good perspective. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>
yeah, because if I can just sit in the other room and hear outside ball, like <laughs> I can be, I can just be on my computer the whole time and then only interact whenever that, you know, mand is given versus, yeah. you know, what she used to do is stand by the door and yell at me. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And you know what she wanted, right? <laughs> and yes. And a lot of it was learning those, you know, weird kind of behavioral cues, um, you know, going over to this particular part of the house meant that we were looking for this thing. You know, there was a bird over here, you know, months ago and maybe it'll come back kind of deal. Um, so yeah, that's really fascinating. Okay. So I'm going to have a very different eye as I watch these videos in the future. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Um, but I do think it's really cool because if nothing else, it shows people that animals are capable of doing a lot of really cool things um, sure. when given good training and good environments that are reinforcing. So it's, you know, I've seen other animals that are learning, um, you know, to respond to sign language because their caregiver is deaf. And so different, different commands and everything. And so it just, it's really fascinating to me to see like how those little behaviors can emerge. Um, I put in the box one of my favorite quotes about dogs, which I think ties into us love that. coming <laughs> on their level rather than expecting them to join us. So, so I'll, I'll read it out loud. So in order to really enjoy a dog, one doesn't merely try to train him to be semi-human. The point of it is to open oneself to the possibility of becoming partly a dog. <laughs> love it. Super, super. Um, Okay. So we've kind of, we've, we've broken down, I think a few things with like looking at buy-in and things like that and like building up skills. Um, you know, we've assessed, we've done the function, we figured out where we want to go, how we get there. That's great. Um, client goes on, they're super happy. And then the theory is then they go forth and they say to all of their friends, hello, you should go and see these wonderful women and look, they will help train you and your pet. And therefore you now have, you know, this steady stream of customers coming in. But that's not how the world works. Um, unfortunately, we have to do some marketing of ourselves. Um, and it's interesting. You know, we, we've already touched a little bit on like the, the use of words like applied behavior analysis or ABA with animals or behavior modification versus training and things like that. So there's a lot of these kind of buzzwords and language that, I mean, again, everything has been, you know, it's, it's contingency based. So it's either I've learned to say these kind of things, or I've learned to put these things out there in order to get people to respond to me. Um, but there's some buzzwords. Uh, and so what, what do you guys think when you're doing that? So when you're trying to market yourselves, what does that process entail? Like, are you looking at what the current trends are? Or are you more looking of like, I know, Laura, you said your way of doing things is a lot of problem solving and teaching them to problem solve. So are you putting that out there? Or are you looking at trying to unpack the buzzwords for people so that they have a better understanding of what they're getting into? Uh, I've tried all of it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's an extinction burst and hopefully something sticks. Uh, what I'm doing right now that is my favorite marketing thing I've done is I'm writing an article once a month for our little tiny local newspaper. And my goal is to always make it a story that demonstrates a scientific point. And so I try to use plain English and I don't say, you know, every once in a while sprinkle in, you know, words like reinforcement, (laughs) but I try to use plain English and make it really like uh, something people can picture and relate to. And like, it's a two for one because 
you know, people get to know what I'm like and like what my approach is like. And I think I'm, I'm also able to like, help people kind of think about things a little differently. So that's been my favorite version of marketing so far. I've also had really good success just networking with veterinarians because then I don't have to buzzword it. I can, <laughs> I can explain to them like, this is what I do. And they are more likely to see every pet than I am. Um, that's the first place people go. And so um, they can, they can then suggest like, maybe you could get some help. <laughs> so those, those are the ways that I've avoided like the, the packaging of it all. Um, Cause I've, I've tried that too, but I didn't, it didn't feel comfortable to me. So. So I like the, the concept of like telling the story with it. Um, I had uh, Nick Green on um, a little while back and he does a lot of fitness and he takes a lot of data with different, you know, weightlifting and everything. And that was his thing is I want my data to tell a story and I want it to, because not, we get excited about data. Um, but I mean, I've sat down with parents, I've sat down with, you know, colleagues or whatever, and not everyone gets as super excited. Um, and so, but being able to show them like, Hey, look, we tried this thing. And then now look what's going on over here. Look how, you know, your animal behavior has changed, but also look how your behavior has changed. Are you more comfortable with your pet? Are you guys doing more things? You know, those kind of experiences. So I think it's really cool that you're able to, to have that, you know, little dissemination moment. So that's awesome. Yeah. It's, so welcome it's back, Eddie. <laughs> a little, little extended technical difficulties there, but uh, we got me back. That's so. okay. So we were just kind of discussing um, unpacking like the buzzwords and marketing because there are certain things that we have found to be reinforcing. Um, but at the same time, like Laura was sharing, sometimes kind of following those packages don't make it, they're not reinforcing for us, like just because it makes us feel uncomfortable or whatever. And so I was just kind of curious what you guys have done to um, you know, make those connections and, you know, find what's reinforcing to help you get out your purpose and be able to do the things that you would like to be able to do. I, I, I will say, um, so the, uh, I, I know I've talked about this a bit. I've talked about it quite a, uh, quite a bit over the, over the past few years. And I've talked with some other colleagues about it. Um, there are a few that have been talking about it a bit more too, but there's always existed within the training community in general, and, and understandably so, but there's always been a branding issue that has existed. And historically, I mean, I, I will tell you that, um, you know, 20 plus years ago when I first started trying to mesh behavior analysis with, with animal behavior, with applied animal behavior issues, the thing that I quickly recognized, and, and it was very fortunate that the people that were the, the big people at that time, like Karen Pryor and, and, and Bob Bailey, were on board with trying to improve the behavior ease and, under, and the, the, the connection to, um, the, between behavior analysis and the training community. But what has always existed for sure at that time, and I feel like it's even more prevalent now, is this branding of terms and branding of, of procedures, branding of protocols. This is what I do. This is what this is. And this is why it's important. And, and in some cases, 
many cases, reinventing a lot of terminology, terms itself. Um, we even see things at the, to the extent of people talking about integrating different approaches and um, talking about their position or, or right down to, to the basics of making ethical decisions even where people are, well, here's what I use to make this ethical decision and I'm going to turn this, I, I'm going to ignore function or something like that, or I'm just going to tell you how this, this approach should be. And I, I find that, like, it's it's daunting. I mean, it, it's I find it a little bit problematic, well, more than a little bit, but uh, a lot problematic. But um, I think it can be a little bit frustrating. So for me, always, always the, the, the key thing that I'm looking at is how do I understand where the terminology is relevant and 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 not just for the sake that it exists because that itself is problem i mean we've seen that happen as well where there are just behavior analysts that refuse to communicate with people because they're not using the same terms that they use and i think that's equally problematic but in the training community i think there's there there's there's a gap between how we're connecting these things to the actual science and I, I often bring up the ethics example because I see no greater illustration of where we see some of these the, the biggest problems in this and what people are trying to impose on others or say how they're supposed to make decisions about even the most uh, some basic functional contingencies or how they're defined, redefining what it means to say reinforcement or punishment or things like that or, or how that's implemented. So oh, I'll just leave it at that for now. That was a mouthful to say while I just came right back in after after my little hiatus there, my technical difficulty that's, hiatus. That's okay. Again, wouldn't be our podcast that technical difficulties. So. <laughs> you know, I think, I don't know if this is what you were getting at, Eddie, but I was thinking about some of the concepts that have come out of like, um, most of them have come out of the Orca Lab that are specific to animal training and then they've sort of like ended up in the like pop science animal literature and like one offhand that i can think of is like the poison cue research and the way that that term has been used in the animal training community is like not always what they were actually looking at in the research Right. Um, and it's sort of come to be like shorthand for like a cue that doesn't mean what you want it to, which is really not what it was, <laughs> right? right. Um, and so right. like for anybody that doesn't know, like the poison cue research was looking at blending negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement and like versus looking at them separately um, or keeping the contingencies separate. Um, and so, I don't know, that's just one example. And I think you know, it's maybe our jobs as the people that bridge both communities to disseminate that better. Um, I don't know what that would look like. But yeah, I, I think that explain gets explain that so that everybody gets what, what the research was about and we can kind of. <laughs> yeah, so. I, I, I think that helps get at a little bit of it. And, and I should say, I'm also not, a. I mean, there are plenty of examples of people that have that, that are coming up, like the, the term bridge or, or what was originally a bridging stimulus or a bridging device itself, right? This is something that comes, yeah. can tie directly back to the Breelands and is not a behavior analytic term and has a lot of importance uh, uh, or, or, or has designated a lot of, 
um, important information within the training community. What's although we can get into some of the problems in identifying what are the components and relevant in terms of um, uh, condition reinforcement, and are we talking about bridges or markers or? But that's a whole other thing. We don't need to go down that road. Um, the point being is, I, I don't want to say I'm opposed to the creation of new terms. I think that the difficulty is when we see people branding particular terms and doing it um, while ignoring how it ties into the existing literature. Um, so it's clearly for uh, the, the, I mean, when we say branding at that level, we're talking about the, the motivation of somebody to, to have some product associated with them and to say, this is my thing and I've now done this and this is what I call this. And so uh, it's not quite as problematic. I, 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 I just, I, I, I guess there's a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of stuff to unpack. And I don't, I don't want to say it sound like I have all these set ways that I'm saying this is the way to do it or that's the way to not do it or this and that. But I'm always interested in, in, in making sure that we're not just reinventing something um, unnecessarily. Um, so yeah, that's, that's some of my concern. And that's why I often bring up the examples that happen within how we're making ethical decisions because we've seen that so much. I mean, the two exa two prime examples there that I'll, I'll mention that are worth mentioning are, are the humane hierarchy in Lima. And both of them have been incredibly problematic for a variety of reasons. Um, and part of it is because of the reinventing of uh, ethical guidelines. And some of it be has been because of the lack of attachment to the way that behavior analysis has traditionally gone about both defining contingencies and identifying proper ethical procedures. So those are two classic examples that I would I would say are two two pretty clear, obvious examples. But we can talk about other procedures as well. Um, so. Yeah, but before we get into the humane hierarchy in Lima, because I think <laughs> that's a whole big discussion. Right, I, I, right. I completely agree. I think the I, I don't mind people labeling that they have put together our principles in a unique fashion and they have this thing, but I do want them to identify those principles at play because I think what happens then is an owner says, I used the trainer that did this thing. That didn't work. I'm going to go there rather than recognizing that you need to pick good principles rather than uh, it's separating. I, th I think it does a real disservice to our field and to our science because it looks like, oh, there's this whole other way of training animals. And it's like, there's not, they're using different words. It's still just Pavlovian and operant conditioning put right. together better or worse. Um, but it, it is this, the owners that are not as savvy see it as this very different way. And then when you say there's actually a science and we can make decisions about how we train and we should have an academic backing to you know, speak about these things because it's a complex subject matter, then it gets dismissed because, oh, well, I trained my dog and I, I'm now a dog trainer and I can make up anything I want because we don't, we've diluted, you know, the, this right. has diluted our science. So yeah. I think it's a, a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the part, I mean, there, there's different components as you already met, as you already alluded to that we could go into and uh, even it, when it comes to ethical guidelines, but certainly those, uh, there's similar problems happening happening at that level where we see a uh, creation of new terminology when the terminology is not necessary, when we have uh, ways to identify 
what we're talking about with that. But people just want to say, oh, but this is brand new. I've come up with my new, um, you know, pull a little, get a lot technique for uh, minimizing uh, barking in the car. And it's only for this one condition. And that's, you have to use this technique and I'm going to attach my name to it so you know it's mine. Yeah, and, and to the point about it being human nature and marketing, I, there, that's our tendency, but I think we can control that, right? I, I, I always think about what does the medical field do? One doctor can't say I offer chemotherapy and this other doctor say, I offer magic uh, unicorn rainbows and that will cure your cancer, even though it's still just chemotherapy, right? There, there has to be some, um, that's why they have you know, board certification and there's regulatory boards. And I really think that's what's needed in our field so that you can't yep. misrepresent yourself and misrepresent what you're doing because people will do that. And I think it's our job as a profession to hold ourselves to higher standards than that. Yeah. 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 We, I, I, this from, from even early on, I mean, there's a long history of the use of aversives for training procedures. And I will, I, I, the, the people that came in and claimed to have some attachment to science to begin with and much of the dog training community misrepresented or, 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 or misinterpreted, misrepresented, whatever we want to say along these lines, how it tied to ethology in many cases. So mm -hmm. certainly there was a lot of mis, uh, there was, there was some, Often, I think dog trainers will attribute it to being some of the um, problems with the research itself, but there was a lot of misrepresentation, and a lot of it came from people that were saying things like, well, this is what ethology says, when that's not what ethology was saying. So there were there were clear problems, and we see the same thing happening. Like This is what behavior analysts say. This is how behavior analysis does this. This is what learning principles say, or this is what and, – and we're seeing some of that, that same problem. So um, – there has to be some level of agreed upon language. And I do agree uh, absolutely, Erica, that I think some of that comes from uh, regulatory bodies as well. I just, boy, have we really messed up some of, the, some of the ways that people have gone about trying to say like, and here's how we're going to initiate regulation, um, including one of the more recent attempts that was done where people wrote up large documents and got people to sign it. And it wasn't even clear that uh, the, there was proper legalese involved. Um, but how that looks, I don't know. We don't. I'm not going to open up that can of worm at this point either. There was a comment in the chat about you know, and that's just the that's just human nature. Um, yeah, because we like to say things and we like to do things our way. Because gosh darn it, I'm a special person and I deserve recognition. And it's hard sometimes to you know, give credit where credit is due. Um, Eddie, you did miss our little bit of discussion because um, you got cut off and I would like to hear the rest about um, when I am not going to call an AAC device because uh, I was enlightened while you were gone. Um, Laura and Erica bo both brought up some great points, including, you know, it can take away um, learning about your animal um, just in general yeah. and becoming reliant on something else. And, and Erica brought up, you know, the lack of uh, discrimination really that's on the buttons themselves. And so I, we've all seen the results of it. So I would love to see actual training with it, um, quote unquote. Um, but yeah, so kind of like, what, what are your thoughts when you see things like that um, and how it relates to the science? Well, I mean, the, the latter part is a little easier in how it relates to the science is often not at all. Um, when we're talking about talk buttons, but, but 
I, I don't want to be as I, I don't want to look there. There's lots of cute stuff. And, and if it's for the purpose of just doing something that's cute or entertaining, that it's enriching for the welfare of the animal, I think, great. You know, like if, if you enjoy uh, letting your your dog or your cat or, or whatever run around and jump on some buttons and you're rewarding them for doing this and it's creating some great interactions between them. OK. Um, Certainly what it means is, I think, where we're, we, we run into the issue with the science. And that's often that it doesn't mean the thing. Is your, are, you, are you having a conversation with your dog through talk buttons? Probably not. Uh, not in the way that people are trying to suggest that, that it's happening. Um, and, and by the way, there, there, there are examples of this historically when people have studied language with animals that have been important including um so good ways um or at least better ways that people have actually implemented some science into understanding some of these things so we can go back to the gardeners and washoe and their attempts at using uh sign language and and, and with chimpanzees i don't that's a lot of other issues there but we can talk about um Certainly, I think uh, uh, Two Savage Rumba, some of the stuff that's been done with the uh, with Kanzi and the lexicons and whatnot. There's really great work out there. The stuff Irene Pepperberg um, has done uh, in the past with Alex, Alex no longer being around, but some of the, the rival model technique and, and things like that, the really interesting ways that people have learned, have attempted to bring some science to understanding language. And when that kind of gets really watered down by, oh, and then I just I just uh, gave my dog a treat for hitting this talk button that cursed at me, and now we're having a conversation, right? So who's the, Erica, who's the, what's the dog? Uh, I know you talked about the, we, when we were talking about this before, the really popular dog with the talk buttons. Uh, oh, um, I'm, blank, I'm blanking on the dog's name that was doing uh, that. Not Molly or something? Maybe someone yeah. bunny. Bunny. Yeah. Bunny, right. bunny, bunny, bunny. It's bunny. Yeah. Everyone knows bunny. And <laughs> right, right, and it's and you see the level of the 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 some of it being incredibly anthropomorphic that people have put into trying to interpret that, and we've seen historically places where that's actually worked against the welfare of individuals in the past, and that's why some of the time I point out uh, where we've seen that, for instance, with facilitated communication where people thought that they were doing something for the benefit of the welfare of the, just to give a little history on this, there were these, these communication boards, communication devices that I think they started in the 80s or so, maybe around the 80s, somewhere. It was a few decades ago that um, were used to assist people that had very little language skills. Uh, and, and typically, uh, there's a variety, but it was often, it became very popular within the autism community. So people with little to no language skills uh, that were autistic, many times adults, and uh, there, they created these boards that they could communicate with if there was somebody who could facilitate, which was guiding the hand typically, along a board to, to communicate some of this language. And all of a sudden, people supposedly started uh, doing things, writing poetry, having entire conversations with other people. So it was seen as a way that was, wow, look at this amazing stuff we've done for the welfare of the individual. But it turned out 
when people started running studies, including some of the double blind studies that they did, the, the actual communication that was happening was happening at the level of the communicator, not, not the autistic individual. It was the person guiding the hand that was in, in a Ouija board-like fashion that was the one doing the communication. And I, I, the seriousness of this is not to be under underplayed here, not to be, uh, it, it, it's so important. There were people that were going to prison because of sexual assault, sexual uh, uh, char charges against, you know, a sexual abuse. Um, so there were things like that that were happening. And there was certainly, uh, if we're talking about, we, we could say, oh, but isn't that entertaining? Isn't it? Look, it made the parents feel better. But think about all the detrimental stuff that happened as a result. And that's my concern with talk buttons at the end of the day. Are we building up a false representation of what people think they're doing in terms of interacting with their animal? And can that end up hurting the welfare of any animals under their care? Yeah, I, I agree. I think the the parallel with facilitated communication is perfect. Not only can it harm other people as it did in the case of facilitated communication, but then then they're not actually communicating their needs to you, right? And so it's the same thing yeah. with, with these buttons. If they're not trained up appropriately as, as pure mans and made discriminable, so the animal knows what it's actually essentially asking for, um, then you might be delivering things that um, are impacting its welfare. Yeah, and, and I will say I'm I'm hoping to see it uh, get published here soon. But uh, uh, Kira Moore, Dr. Kira Moore, who uh, is traditionally in autism, uh, does uh, work well. Actually, she does a lot of sleep work and comes from Hanley's lab. Um, but she's done. She's a BCBA traditional applied behavior analyst who's been uh, slowly but surely getting her way into uh, doing more animal work, has a blog that she's written about talk buttons that I think it'll be published soon. I don't know where she's publishing it, but keep an eye out for that. I think it's a, it's a great little blog. I, I just uh, read it the other day um, uh, when she was asking for some uh from a, a group of us. So yeah, uh, that's, that's great. Um, I, I think that's another piece that somebody's written about important about what are some of the, what's happening? How do we understand this? And I, I think really the focus on what does this mean for the welfare and potential damage that can be done? We can't just treat it like it's all fun and games and it's playful. Um, unless that's the approach we take, but that's it. Okay. If people go into it, understanding, this doesn't really mean much that your dog you're not having a conversation with your dog you're just your dog is just jumping on some buttons um most likely based on how you've rewarded it and that you haven't really tied in the science of communication that does exist the science of animal language that does exist great if you understand that and you just say hey it's just enriching okay great but we have to be clear about that Thank you. That was an excellent discussion. I appreciate that. Um, so I feel like that's a call to any grad student who needs a good thesis or a good, you know, yeah. project to go work on. Go play around with some discrimination training with buttons with your pet, you know, something like that. Because, yeah, I would like to be able to see, if, you know, what else is there. Um, and like, and as you've mentioned, if the function is just to make the animal's life, just to have some fun. Okay, cool. 
but as you guys were talking, I was thinking of like how generalization can be impacted. And, you know, if, if I, if I'm only learning to push this button when I'm hungry, then what am I going to do if the button breaks or something like that? So there are these, you know, potential barriers and potential, you know, tragic things that could occur. Um, so thanks for pointing all those things out. Um, and someone just posted, you know, obtaining consent from an animal. And this is one that who is huge in the disabilities world, um, especially with the ASD yeah. community feeling very unheard over the last several years. And when you are um, an organism who does not have a vocal verbal communication system, a lot of times your voice isn't heard. And so what does that mean? Um, which actually I would love for you guys to spend, I know that we are kind of pushing time here, but if we could do like a little quick discussion of, of consent with animals. Um, I know MB, she hated her nails being trimmed. And so she had very much a withdrawal of consent. She would hold my hand, I would hold her paw, and I would bring the nail clippers out and she would yank it away. <laughs> and so it was like, oh, we're not going to do this. And so we found other ways to work through that. Um, but that was, again, a lot of me understanding my dog. And you're working with humans who are also learning about their pets or their animals. Um, and that behavior looks different. So what what does that look like with you guys and what you do? I mean, I, I think one of the issues is with the word consent, which I think what right. Michelle bringing up there, right, is is you have trained approach that I think this goes back to the the, the understanding that all behavior is controlled, right? That that um, there are contingencies controlling your behavior. So if I have reinforced you for approaching, does that mean you're giving consent or that is just the reinforced behavior? And so I think that's where, um, you know, consent is used so frequently in the animal training world. And I don't think it actually means what they want it to mean. Um, and I, I think understanding that that is a reinforced behavior, that's a positively reinforced behavior of approaching, hopefully. And this, you know, the other behavior of the dog pulling its paw away was probably negatively reinforced. Um, then is the positive reinforced behavior showing consent or that's just a separate contingency? And, and that it's at least uh, repetitive enough to overcome the aversiveness of the potential nail trim. So I don't know, I'm sure others have things to say on this too. Yeah, I, I, this conversation just came up recently about the word consent and in talking about it with training procedures in general. And uh, the, the, the simple statement I said, which I'm not even sure I'm, I'm happy with this now at this point either, um, is that I said, I, I tend to avoid using the term consent when talking about what animals are doing, except for where I'm just simply talking about when it's clearly violated. So when the animal is not given a choice, that's when I will talk about, well, the animal did not have consent. But talking about animals giving consent because I'm rewarding some behavior or whatnot, I think is um, might not really get at the operational definition of what I think is relevant to consent. And also, the term consent has really important uh, usage uh, for a variety of things, including what's happening with people working with other people. Uh, and some of the, what I think, and worth recognizing, some of the, the historical stuff, some stuff that's still happening today that it's been, from my perspective, ethic, at least ethically questionable under the name of uh, hey, we're just using reinforcement or applied behavior analysis or whatnot, and and we can talk about that. Eh, that's 
side? <laughs> How much are people involved in being able to make any decisions about what's happening to them at that level? So certainly, uh, I know this is that's a hot topic and something that's been debated within applied behavior analysis, and we've kind of danced around it a little bit, but it's worth pointing out this is one of the reasons why I emphasize and why I'll avoid the simple answer here is I'll avoid using the word consent as much as possible when talking about animal behavior. But it's also another reason why I I so critically emphasize that so much of what I'm doing and, and the use of science itself is for the purpose of improving the welfare of the animals I'm working with. So when our focus is on the welfare of the animals uh, that we work with, then I think that helps remind us of, of the importance of, uh, of not just being reward-based and also, by the way, the importance of knowing the function of behavior and then bringing in the science. Science can be very ethical, but also just recognizing where we, we are, we can be a bit different in what we do with animals than I think some of the other approaches that have occurred within behavior analysis. Yeah, I think I, I avoid the word consent, too. I, I probably, uh, the one where, where you're talking about the absence of consent, um, and, and I think that's where we can talk about choice, right? Are there, um, does the animal have another option, or does it, is there no other way to uh, get out of it other than doing what you've made it do? Yeah. I really like that. Um, and I like the reiteration of, it, you know, who's your client? when it comes down to it, who are we, who are we supposed to be working for helping, et cetera? Um, you know, and it's this animal and it's habitat. And so if it's not, you know, if it's not going to grow, then we need to, we need to do something different. Um, so really yeah. cool. Oh man. All right. So I am, like I said, looking at time, um, and, I don't, I'm going to do one more quick roll through the chat. So if you guys have any other comments or anything or questions, feel free to throw them in the chat. And I'm going to open the floor to um, the three of you to kind of give any last little words of wisdom, um, any final thoughts. And then if you'd also kind of, if you would like to share um, where we can find you on the interwebs, um, you know, any kind of contact. So that way, if people have further questions, they can reach out to you. They can find you on the social meds. Um, they, you guys can always reach out to me. Um, but yeah, I'll let you guys give your final thoughts. And then where can we find you? I, I can I can head this off if you want. <laughs> but this is a, this has been really fun. I mean, I, I just think that behavior analysis has so much to offer the animal training world. Um, and and I think we're just starting to kind of pull in all of the techniques and approaches we have that can be useful. Um, and, and I know someone in an earlier comment, um, I think asked about like pinpointing behaviors and, and part of that, what I always think of is needing to professionalize our field. I think behavior is extremely complex and, um, and the ethical decisions we're faced with are extremely complex. And so I, I think this is where the professionalization really comes in. And I, those of you that work in the applied um, human field might be shocked at how little oversight there is in the applied animal field. Um, and so I think, you know, I turn to the BCBA a lot of times as sort of a potential model for how we try and regulate the applied animal field um, and try and give some guidelines on how we make decisions. Cause I think people have been thinking about that in that field for a long time. Um, and that's one yeah. of my goals is just trying to elevate our field um, to the, you know, the hard science that it is. 
Yeah, I just echo a lot of that same sentiment. I mean, I think that's incredibly important. And I, and I think that's particularly relevant to when we start talking about uh, the ethical decisions we make. Um, I know one of the things that I've really enjoyed uh, in behavior analysis in general um, within the field is that we see people be critical of our own field, uh, including the ethics. Like we see that and it's not that, that that's, that's, that's a, that's a critical component. It's part of what's allowed us to evolve, right? There have been times historically when behavior analysis has done some stuff that just we would never imagine allowing behavior analysis to do that today. And that's worth recognizing for the importance of not repeating some of those same errors. And I, I think that the reward-based community itself within animal training has done a really great job of being uh, uh, incredibly ethical in thinking about well, I don't want to do these things. I don't want to use aversives. I don't want to do these things. So there, there but um, we still, it, it's, I think for us, how are we tying that back to some of the guidelines, some of the principles, some of the decisions that um, the field in general, the behavior analysis field and other fields as well, um, have done, have gone about deciding how we, we go about and, 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 make scientifically informed ethical decisions. So I, I think that's really relevant as well. And all of this has got to happen through regulation at some level. So I'm still mystified at the fact that there are, I, I understand the skepticism of regulation, but it does, it's a necessary step. We, we, we have to get there at some level. All right, one more break. Here is the second of your two key words. The second word is Define, D-E-F-I-N-E. When marketing, it can be helpful to behaviorally define buzzwords. Define. I agree. Um, <laughs> I think there's, it's interesting because just for people that aren't involved, I mean, I'm, I'm more involved in the dog training community than like zoos. So I don't really know what exists there, but in the dog training community, there's some like, easily five different organizations you could be like certified with and it kind of seems like that's the regulation is something that's a hot topic and everybody it seems like there's a lot of people that want it um there's probably an equal number of people that don't but um there's like almost too many cooks in the kitchen so i think it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out but um I saw Claudia's question and I just wanted to say that there is a SIG for applied animal behavior and Erica and I are both part of it. And um, they've got some really, there's a Facebook page and there's some really great resources about how to get started in animal training. Cause those are questions we always get. Um, so you can check out the like recording of our panel about that if that's a question you have and that's a great way to connect if you want to get involved more um but yeah so i i, I that distracted me enough that i don't remember what else i was gonna say <laughs> i was actually perfect because i was like networking that's the big thing that's what we want to yeah. do is put people in connection with with other people because you know we're all learning um and eddie pointed out like the field again we're a young science fields in a sense um and we've learned a lot and we have been faced with a lot of choices that were poor um and the consequences of those choices and 
in order to get better, we have to make some changes on our own. And so for, you know, the animal side of things, if that's laying out some regulations in certain ways um, and having those discussions, fantastic. But yeah, we can't just sit and do the same thing we've been doing um, if we're going to make any kind of progress. And so I love the fact that that discussion is starting to be had. And I look forward to kind of seeing how that develops. And I did see a comment that um, it looks like in Canada, they're starting to have those conversations and really hone in on um, on the professional side of things. So it, it, it's going to happen. I mean, this is I think there. It, it's not it's something that you cannot stop. I don't, every profession goes to a level of regulation, goes through that level, like every profession. So if you are opposed, and I understand, I am, I'm empathetic to being skeptical, especially if some, I, I even pointed out one of the things I was skeptical about, which was one of the approaches that people took to trying to create this massive document um, that, that I think itself was problematic. But I understand being skeptical of the way the approaches are. But if your if, if your simple response is, we don't need regulation, you're going to miss the boat. It's going to happen. So the question is, how do we make it happen in a way that is most ethical and, and consistent with the science? That's what I'm really ultimately concerned with. And not just being scientistic. So I think that's incredibly relevant as well, is we need to be scientific, not scientistic, because we've seen many, many examples of people doing things, uh, including the branding issue, that end up being a bit more scientistic than they are actually scientific. Well, now I, like I want that word, scientific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want Zoom cat and scientific on stickers now. Awesome. So... Okay, well, um, it looks like our chat has kind of slowed down. Thank you, Helen, for you know putting that in there. I appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, um, when it comes to reaching out to you guys, I know we can find you guys on LinkedIn, Facebook. Laura, you put the link in there, and I'll make sure that um, everyone's connections are on our guest pages. And um, when we go live on the website, we'll have all of our resources there. But, yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I'm here. <laughs> so if you ever have a question or a comment, feel free to reach out to me and I can put you in touch with one of our wonderful, wonderful guests. Um, thank you guys for hanging out with us on a Friday. This was, this was awesome. I learned a lot today. I'm so excited. And then I get to have the fun privilege of listening to it again. So I get like double time. So anyway, um, for <laughs> those of you who want CEs, I am dropping it in the chat box right now. You go to our website, you fill in the blanks um, with the correct information. Um, and yeah, other than that, I love you all beautiful humans. Uh, be kind to each other. It's a tough world out there. So be kind, try to find some happiness and sunshine in your day. Be nice to the other humans and uh, we'll see you all later. Bye. Thank you for listening to this adventure of the Atypical Behavior Analyst. Check out the website atypicalba.com for more episodes, references, and to purchase CEUs. To stay up to date, like and follow us on social media. Just search Atypical Behavior Analyst. If you like the show, please rate and leave us a review. And if you want to support the show but don't need CEUs, you can help by clicking the Buy Us a Coffee link in the show notes. So until next time, listeners, grab your towel, keep exploring, and we'll see you in the fringes. Oh, well, hello again. You're still listening. 
That's most excellent. As promised, here's a preview from episode 36. Enjoy, and we'll see you soon. So process mapping can also help you make things more efficient, um, maybe remove a step or do like do like a reorg. Um, so you could say, oh, it might be more effective if like the barista that's taking orders also makes the orders. That also probably wouldn't be effective because then there'd be a line of customers and no one taking the order. So that probably work, wouldn't work as at, at Starbucks. So that's kind of how process mapping works.